Hi there, I'm George Hamilton, and you're listening to In Conversation With. I did, a, I did a, an interview once uh, with, uh, you remember the year uh, Claire won the, the All-Ireland, the Hurling? Oh, uh, yeah. 2013? Uh, no, this was the Marty Morrissey fame. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Kyle Milk and Claire tonight. And I was sent down to um, interview them as they left for their holiday afterwards. Uh, and we turned up at Shannon Airport. Gerard Nan was the... Uh, was the, the manager, of was this pre-9-11, so we were able to get on the plane and everything before they were going. We were actually thrown off the plane by the captain because he was going to miss his slot. <laughs> it was really good. But uh, in the course of the interview with Gerard Nan, he said, I said, but why are you taking them to Thailand? I think it was Thailand they went to. And he said, uh, well, you know, we've had such a hard year and we've had to battle so hard to get to this All-Ireland. And we thought to ourselves, well, if there's a choice of only two places if we want to get away from her that talk about hurling or know anything about hurling, and that's either Tipperary or Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> you like how uh, George is dressed? Yeah, yeah, very black for, isn't it? I feel like I mean, I said he looks dressed. You have to. No, he sets I a standard. Funny thing. I, I, I used to be a shoot. Yeah. Yeah. I dress like you. And is this your <laughs> uniform, George? This is my uniform. Yes. Yeah. 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 We'll touch on that. We'll yeah. touch on you that. can do that. You can do that because you never know. It could be what we say in, in vision. You see, and if yeah. I'm in vision, I have to look the part. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, what do you all do? Uh, communication studies. All of you? Yes. Ah, so that's, that's why... What, that's this kind, is of, my, kind yeah. of how we mess and also through the society yeah. that and, we have here at NPS. And this is a, a podcast? Yes. yes, it is, yes. So we started as a radio show, but we're now a podcast, um, just because it's a lot more mobile, a lot more flexible, so we can do interviews as and when they come to us, rather than uh, guests trying to fit our schedule into theirs, yeah. which is, is a lot more complicated for... People like yourself in the media who are obviously quite busy on a day-to-day basis, yes. it's hard to nail down one time I know. Uh, and in a week. Where and then you lose so. your messages and you can't remember, will you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, I accidentally... I, see, I, 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 yeah, see, I tend... I have a thing where I don't like uh, messages getting clogged up, so I tend mm-hmm. to just kind of sweep through them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just needed reminding about when... That's when right. It was <laughs> nothing against you personally. No, 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 I didn't take any offense. I just thought it was very yeah, funny. You just, <laughs> yeah, you just reminded me. No, it's you just reminded me of a lot of yeah. people. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, uh, Colin is our chief email officer. You know, that's, oh, what, that's what we call him. Um, so he, he actually books most of our guests. So in yeah. fairness to him, we do like to give him a little bit of shit. But, uh, you did you did email me in the first place didn't I you? did um, and that's actually a great story so we'll get into the show so this is in oh we haven't begun yet no yeah, oh, well um, yeah no um, it's good thing you were sorry you said that okay yeah so this is in conversation with uh, I'm Colin and I'm always joined by my co-host Greg at least you looked at me this time yeah, <laughs> and uh, Gavin how you doing From and Gavin. yeah Gavin. as we were just teasing there uh, I obviously emailed George as I do all of our guests and we were over in the Henry Grant studio and I sent away the email and I think probably about half an hour an hour later I get a phone call from a number I don't recognise and I pick up the phone Oh this was in our little office Yeah it was yeah and I pick up the phone and it's Hi Colin Yes George Hamilton here Oh hi George <laughs> <laughs> And George was calling me from Rome <laughs> where he was just about to commentate on the Roma Liverpool game in the Champions League semi-final and I was completely taken aback. I think you could probably tell it in my voice, George. I was very surprised that you would actually... Because I do leave my number at the end of the email, but that's... People generally tend to yeah. try and describe it as best they can. Well, I, I they just email back usually, but you, you, you <laughs> took my, the time to... My excuse was that uh, because I checked my mails and 
it was a busy time, obviously. Yeah. I figured if I let it go, mm. uh, I'd forget all about it mm. because the mailbox would get clogged. Yes, and exactly, then yeah. I'd never look back that far and then you'd say, that fella never got back. <laughs> so I thought that <laughs> probably would have gotten back to you anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Persistent, if nothing else. Okay. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'll ask the first question as I generally do. What was your initial thought when I did email you asking you to be on the show? Uh, I was very uh, delighted to be asked, um, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, at the very start of my career, uh, I was uh, the recipient of an enormous amount of help from all sorts of people, from the very top levels to the people I was working with when I was starting off. Uh, and I just feel that it is important for the continuum of what we do and the maintenance of standards, because obviously I am a little bit older than you guys and will be stopping doing this before you do that I think it's best that standards are maintained and the best way to do that is impart the information and the knowledge that you have and share it uh, and get it out there. And I'll tell you a story about that which you may or may not have heard because I, I tell it often but it was to do with uh, my uh, beginning as a broadcaster. First of all uh, there was the audition that I did in the BBC in Belfast when I presented a, a minute and a half report on a rugby match and I was sitting there pretty tense and nervous reading it on my own in the studio with this production lady on the other side of the glass and a sound engineer. So it was kind of nerve wracking. And I read through the report, which I was doing like on Thursday afternoon, having been at the match on Saturday. So I had all these days to get it just right. And I said, uh, it was Queen's University against Balamina. And Queen's University were on top. Uh, however, Balamina turned over, so we didn't use the phrase back then. and scored a try. And when it was all over, Joy Williams, who went on to become the first female head of sport in the BBC anywhere, she was the one who was taking the audition. And she brought me outside into the cubicle uh, and said, sit down there and read that to me again, not through the microphone, just read it. And when we got to the paragraph that began, however, she said, stop. Said, if you were telling me that, as opposed to reading a script about it, what would you say? So Queen's University were on the top, but Balamina turned it up. Yeah, so why are you saying However, when you would actually say, but, because the middle B in mm -hmm. BBC is broadcasting, not BWC, British Writing Corporation, but BBC. So think about that. That was the first big tip I got. Then, when I'd eventually got in and got on a bit, I found myself in Dublin about to do my first rugby commentary. Uh, and it was a radio commentary on Ireland, Scotland in 1974, I think. Um, and in those days, BBC, RTE, uh, public service broadcasters had loads of money. <coughs> Excuse me. So we came down on a Thursday to stay at the Shell Hotel, <laughs> which, as you can imagine, would have been quite a, a nice thing to yeah, do. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, um, Friday morning, Captain's Run, as they call it. Now, Scotland were in College Park, Trinity College, so out down Kildare Street and in. She took me, and this is all new to me. And I arrived in College Park, and there's the Scottish rugby team running up and down the pitch passing the ball, doing this, that and the other. There were a few people watching, and one of them was a man I instantly recognised off the television, the BBC's commentator, Bill McLaren. Tall, elegant Scotsman, shock of black hair, beautiful uh, cream gabardine coat, and uh, three or four people in a little knot talking to him. But I recognised him because he was taller than the rest, he stood out, I knew his face from television. And I said, oh God, Joe, there's Bill McLaren. He said, Christ, darling, because Joy was a bit like that. He said, Christ, come on, I introduce you. He said, no, don't, don't, jeez, you can't do that. I mean, he's Bill McLaren and I haven't done one yet. Anyway, uh, she, she was the kind of lady who would uh, 
former hockey player, you know, nothing stood in her way. So she strode up the touchline to Bill, and of course Bill knew her. So when Bill saw her coming, he was the nice gentleman that he was. I said, ah, oh, hello, Joy. And Joy said, oh, great, Bill, great to see you, great to see you. And Dominic, what are we going to use you, George? This is my new commentator. <laughs> and I'm kind of, please don't, you know. <laughs> Bill McLaren had a way with him. He came from a town called Hoyt in Scotland, in the Scottish borders. And there they, they have a boiled sweet called a Hoyt ball, like a brandy ball or, you know, the things you used to buy in mm -hmm. shops. Anyway, he always had a little packet of these in his coat. And he picked out the things. He said, have a Hoyt ball. That was the first thing he said to me after we'd shaken hands. And then he excused himself from the men who were with him and Joy, who then started talking to them. And he walked me up the touchline. I think Bill McLaren is taking me up the touchline to talk to me. He said, it's your first one tomorrow. I said, yes. He said, well, I'll give you a few wee tips. And he pulled out of his pocket the commentary sheet that he had. And here's another good tip coming. And it was like four, we used to call them full scat pages, A4 pages, and they're all sellotaped together. And at the top of the front, the uh, top of the middle of the top, there were the two teams. And that, that's, uh, everything else kind of emanated from that. And these four pages were absolutely covered in colour-coded notes. I said, goodness gracious, Bill, that's like a work of art. Uh, how long did it take? He said, well, they announced the teams on Monday, as they did in the amateur days. It was all, they always announced the teams uh, early on in the week. So he said, why don't the teams come out, I put them in. And then I just set to work and every time something strikes me, I put it in. And I've got all this stuff here, so I have plenty of material by the time Saturday comes. And when I go in the comedy box, I lay this before me and uh, it's there for me to use. I said, my goodness me, how will you ever get all that into the commentary? He said, I won't. He said, I will only use 5% of what's written there, but until the game is over, I will not know which 95% to junk. Uh, and that was it. And if you ever get the chance, and go to what is now known as the Bill McLaren Lounge in uh, Murrayfield, which is the press lounge just behind the press box. You will see framed on the wall, complete with a picture of him, the copy of, uh, maybe it's the original, mm -hmm. of his very last commentary. Oh, great. And framed on the wall. And that's the press great. lounge is actually called the Bill McLaren Lounge. Oh, that's so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's, that was, um, in answer to your question, uh, why did I accept an invitation? Yes. <laughs> so that's why. Yeah. And I think it is a, a pretty universal answer in this industry. A lot of the people that we've uh, talked to uh, in RTE and uh, other organisations, yeah. they say that we are the next generation, mm -hmm. if you will. We're only starting to find our feet in this industry. But like you said, maybe in 20 or 30 years' time, we'll be where you are and we have to keep the high standard in fairness mm -hmm. that, you, that you've um, set. Well, if you, if you accept it uh, and you're, you're, you know... To get, to get the best out of yourself, you're gonna to have to, in whatever field it is you're in, you're gonna to have to apply yourself. Like you wanna become the top surgeon or the top consultant in uh, psychiatry or whatever it is, you're gonna to have to apply yourself to that. And it could take you, I mean, my stepdaughter had turned uh, 31 and she has just done a, an exam, another exam, uh, which is a GP exam, she's a medical student, I should have said. Um, but she's now 31, still doing exams. Uh, so I think in any field, you, you've got to keep doing the exam, Correct. whether it's a, a real exam or whether it's a, it's a simple uh, step up that you're trying to achieve by working harder at, at some specific aspect. Setting whatever. a goal. You're setting a goal and going for it. And I often say when people will ask me you know, how, how I might go about my work, it's only now that, you know, well, well into my career, you know, the, the other end of it, that I'm looking back and saying, you know, I don't think I ever stopped being a student. This is what it was. Like my, my uh, subjects were German and French. 
But I, I realised that what I, I do now is exactly what it was like when I was doing my dissertation. Every football match, every rugby match, every athletics meeting is like a dissertation. Mm -hmm. You've got to pre prepare it uh, and make sure you're on top of it. Uh, and, you know, the, the old Roy Keane thing, which is not his alone, but uh, yeah. fail to prepare, prepare to fail. It's, it's, I mean, it, it applies in every walk of life. Um, and you guys, are, I think, are, are very lucky because it, it's a very fulfilling career, communications. It is, undoubtedly, in, in whatever sphere of it you, you end up in, I think you'll find that, that you are fulfilled doing what you do. Um, and I've often said over the years, again, it's, it's, it's a pleasure and a privilege to work in the RTE sports department, which is where I work, but I can equate it to the BBC sports departments, where I came from in Belfast and London, that uh, people in sport, in particular, tend to be in the game because they want to be. They haven't just become a radio producer, a TV producer, and been assigned to that. Mm -hmm. They tend to be there because they want to be, because to some it's an unattractive area because, well, they may not have much interest in sport, but equally it's mostly weekend work, yeah. uh, which doesn't appeal to everybody. It's generally um, on the sideline, it's, it's wet, it's yes, windy. Yes, there's all of that too. So it's, uh, and, uh, it's, it's just, I think, something that attracts people who want to be in it, uh, and that in itself creates a, a wonderful buzz and a wonderful atmosphere. So we'll, we'll take you back to the start as a young boy growing up up yeah. north in Belfast. Mm -hmm. Was I suppose sport was obviously a big interest of yours growing up. It yeah. had to be because it shaped your career. But um, what about broadcasting? Was that always something that you had envisioned? Uh, envisioned. envisioned? Uh, yeah. Um, well, there's a funny thing. I'm an only child, um, and only children tend to talk to themselves. And yeah, I can, I can relate to that. Yeah. I am an only child. Well, so, yeah. I could rattle off uh, a number of only children uh, who do what I do or did what I do, and now retired or sadly deceased. Uh, Fred Cogley, uh, Jim Sherwin, uh, Jim Neely up north, mm -hmm. uh, Jerk Canning, who uh, grew up as an only child. One of our former guests as well. And uh, had a lot, of, uh, a lot with, of things to say about yourself as with well. Whom, with whom I go back a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, UCC, sure. Queen's University, yeah. Hollywood Cup, yes. Uh, and the last one I was going to mention was uh, Marty Morrissey. Oh, of course. Yeah. So um, I think uh, you're, you're kind of turned in on yourself for your own. Uh, entertainment almost. And my entertainment, because my dad uh, was a football player, he played for uh, Cliftonville uh, in the Irish League, who were a team the same as Bohemians, they were amateur in those days, and they never won anything. But uh, he used to take me uh, to the games on a Saturday and get me into the dressing room and all that when I was a little nipper. Because there was never a big crowd at the games, so it was a handy place to take a kid and mm -hmm. there wouldn't be any, not that you'd be in any danger, but you wouldn't be in any... You wouldn't get too far. Maybe. No, no. So anyway, he would take me, and this sparked my interest, and Solitude, their ground is a tight little ground, so we would stand behind the goal, and close enough uh, that you could actually smell the imprecation of the goalkeeper, you know, it was wonderful. <laughs> and this just sucked me in. And there were always goals being scored because they were always getting beaten. <laughs> but, that, but that image, of the goalkeeper's name was Jim Parkhill, but the, did see, watch Jim Parkhill doing his stuff. And then, of course, the ball would go past him and thud into that net, and it would be just like, foot away from your face and go, wow! <laughs> it just kind of got me absolutely enthralled. So when I was at home playing, we had a dining room table, not the size of this obviously, but there was a big heat resistant mat uh, that my mother preserved the, 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 the wood, with, the wood yeah. with. And uh, on that heat resistant mat, I painted the lines of the football pitch. And they got me uh, for Christmas a, a toy football game called uh, New Footy as it was then. The little men that you kind of flicked around yeah, the yeah. ball and I 
goalkeepers on a little spiky thing that they could make the save. It was meant to be played by two people, but I didn't have a second person, so I played with my team this way. Ambidestrous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the left-handed team didn't tend to win. <laughs> but um, I would then start to commentate on these matches okay. for myself. Um, and so this was always kind of there. And then came the final year of my studies uh, and I was having to fill in application forms for jobs and such. And I thought, oof, you know, I, I was always interested in, um, in broadcasting, uh, I'm intrigued by the whole thing and I watch, you know, watching matches on TV and all that and listening on the radio before, before TV. Uh, and when I'd been at Queen's, I'd, I'd been a DJ in the snack <laughs> bar. Uh, they had what they called uh, Sums Students Union Music Society. Uh, and I was the nine to ten jock on that. I can't imagine how I ever got in there for nine to <laughs> to do it, but I did. Um, but you had a little cubby hole in the corner, and it only broadcast to the snack bar and right. whoever was there. He just played music, but I did that. So I was thinking back and having done this, and maybe I should give it a go. So uh, I sought an audition in the BBC because at the time the only sporting outlet they had was a Saturday afternoon roundup show. Uh, where people did like the match report I was talking about and they were all part-time broadcasters I mean there were solicitors there were school teachers there were civil servants they were a motley crew of guys older than me but who had wanted to get involved um, maybe the odd former player among them as well who was now in, in an, uh, an adult life as opposed to a playing life uh, so I thought I could do that uh, and if I did that I could um, I could see if I was any good at it. Uh, so I, I did the audition, I got the gig, and um, that's what I did in my final year on Saturday afternoons. I, I went to rugby matches and did reports. And when I was all over, and I now had a choice to make, because I had been offered a job in the civil service, uh, what would I do? Uh, I thought, well, I'll put it on hold if I can. So I said, yeah, they put it on hold. And I thought I'd freelance for a year and see what happens. See where it takes you. See where it takes me. And before that year was up, I had a contract as a, a continuity announcer and newsreader. Okay. Uh, so the civil service got a thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> How did your parents feel about this one? Funny, I was just going to tell you that my mother was apoplectic. I imagine. <laughs> I imagine. Apoplectic. You are taking such risks with your future. This and is a civil service. It's a job yeah. for life. Yes, you know? absolutely. And a pension and mm. everything. And goodness knows you could end up at the top of the civil service and work your way through the ranks. Absolutely, and this will be wonderful. Um, and, you know, uh, she was undoubtedly right, but by the same token, I don't think I would have uh, quite enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed uh, the journey I've been on through all the years, all the years of, of all the sporting events. So uh, they, weren't, they weren't the best pleased. No. no, no. Uh, my father was more understanding, but okay. he knew where this was coming from. Right. Uh, but she. Did, did he say to you, though, right, you have your year? After that, now. Well, he was he was he would be cautious enough, yeah. But mm. he'd sit. But I think once I got the contract, he felt a bit. He more. felt a bit more. And then my mother would say, uh, she she forgot about the civil service because the BBC was like a second best civil service. Okay. Say, why did you get yourself a staff job? <laughs> a staff job. <laughs> uh, but I never did. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's not that's not to say there's anything against that. Uh, but it was just the way it worked uh, worked out for me. And another guy who started at the same time as me, uh, Mike McKim, was his, is his name, 
Um, he eventually got the staff job, but he is now retired. Oh, yeah. So, so uh, longevity and stamina. Well, is... that part of it is also the fact that BBC kicks you out at sixty. Oh, so okay. you know, if if I'd gone down that road, um, you might be. Uh, oh, you're asking me to be here. Yeah, yeah. no interview. You're retired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you were in BBC, did you have any grown pains starting out? Any? I think it, I think I was lucky because I was. Um, I was at home, you know, I was in my hometown, home place, um, knew what the score was and uh, I think the, the most important thing uh, that they were concerned about at the time was how you spoke. Oh. Uh, you know, so in, the, in, in my, the board for the... How you enunciate the words? Yeah. Or? How do you pronounce, said the head of programmes, who was a man from the world of drama, how do you pronounce A-M-A-T-E-U-R? And that was going to uh, pass me or fail me. Um, amateur, not amateur. Okay. Amateur. So I, I was, I, I saw where this was coming from, and I was able to give him the amateur. What dancers you want? <laughs> Regardless of what I might have said okay. in the pub, um, but I, I knew what he wanted. Uh, okay. Did they ever try to neutralise your accent at all? No, they didn't. No, okay, no, they didn't. And I think I've been lucky uh, in, in the, on the accent front because although I'm definitely Northern, uh, because I've been away uh, from there for so long, and part of that time was spent in England, but most of it was here, um, I haven't, it, it's, it's kind of become uh, my own. Yeah, distinct. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, so, no, they, they never did. No, it was not. As, as long as, I mean, it, you have to remember too that it, it was the whatever the standards were at the time and that's not to say that standards have slipped it's just to say that standards are different I mean if you even think of the BBC uh, the London BBC like Radio 4 where they now have regional accents reading the news mm -hmm. including a lady who went to the uh, the same school as me in, in Belfast um, whose name is Casey at the moment but she reads the news on Radio 4 in a Belfast accent okay. which would never have happened mm -hmm. when I was starting mm -hmm. I, think I could never have ended up as a news reader uh, on Radio 4 at that time, but, but she has done it. Clugston, that's her name. Cause yeah. We asked, uh, we asked her Canning the same, and he said no. I, he, I think he, did, he said he did a couple of lessons, mm. just how to pronounce his words oh, yes. a bit more, but like they never said in any way to conceal his accent. Or no, to no. I, I think uh, it, there's a richness and diversity in all of the accents, and, and as a, a linguist, which is what I started out as, I mean, I'm always fascinated uh, by uh, in particular uh, German, where when I lived in Ger I lived in Germany uh, as part of my uh, mm -hmm. program. Uh, when I hear Germans speak, which I do a lot, because uh, when we go on holiday to uh, Spain uh, or the Spanish islands, there there are invariably loads of Germans around, and I it's one of my little uh, you know lying up by the pool hearing them talk. Uh, I, I'm not doing anything except soaking up the rays I'm listening to them I'm wondering where they're from if I can place their accent okay. so I think there's a, a wonderful richness and diversity in um, you know in accents did, did you ever hear them talk about you at the poolside and then did uh, it no the, fun, the, the funniest thing of that was uh, from some years ago I'd been at a concert in Croke Park which featured Billy Joel and Elton John Very good. and I had uh, a t-shirt uh, which had been bought for me, which was the kind of all the tour dates on it. Okay. And we were on holiday in the Canaries, as it happened not long after. And uh, I don't know why these people did it, but I, I had been to the shops and I was coming back with a bag of groceries to our apartment. And I passed this apartment with a garden and, and in the garden were these people and they saw the t-shirt 
and they made a very disparaging remark in English about the T-shirt, obviously assuming that I wasn't English <laughs> <laughs> or didn't speak English. Yeah. You know. Um, but that, that was the deal. No, I've never heard the Germans okay. talk about me at the pool side, no. So before we continue and talk about your broadcasting career, let's talk about your time spent in Queen's University. Like oh, yes. you said, you studied um, German and French. Yes. What was it that drew you to uh, studying languages at university? Um, it, my I only child had an older cousin who was also an only child, six years older than me, uh, Stuart. And um, Stuart went through Queen's before me uh, doing French and Spanish. And I showed some kind of aptitude for languages through the early years of school. And so going on towards in the system there, it was O-levels and then A-levels. Uh, I retained, we all had to do French to O-level. I retained German to O-level, did well in both French and German. And so they became two of my four A-level subjects. And because there was a kind of family thing that this had led somewhere, Stuart had a career as a school teacher, this, this had led somewhere. It made sense family-wise. And I enjoyed it, so uh, that's how I, I started doing that. First three subjects I did, you had to do three in your first year. So I did French, German and political science for one year. And then I majored on French and German. And actually, in the degree that I did, it was a 10 part degree. And you could go five and five or six and four. Okay. So I went six and four German. Uh, on the basis that I figured I was going to have to go away for a year if I went to France. I'd always find French rather more straightforward because it's, it constructs itself like English. Mm -hmm. um, I felt if I went to France, I'd come back speaking fluent French and never get my German back. But if I went to Germany, I'd come back speaking fluent German, but I would get my You'd French back. You'd still your yeah. French, yeah. yeah. And that's, in fact, uh, what has happened because, um, funnily enough, uh, my daughter, uh, only in November, uh, married a guy from France. Oh, great. So <laughs> half the... Wedding was. I was gonna, I was gonna ask. I tell you, were working the room that day. I, I, I tell you, <laughs> father of the bride's speech was uh, was was pretty good. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah, and I know the French word for son-in-law now. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually gonna ask, like, has have you found that studying those two languages helped your professional career? Be oh, like yeah. in, in did like you ever some, use it in actually like, in, a, in a professional class? Oh, like, yes. Did you ever commentate in? Uh, no, uh, okay. but I've been in, uh, uh, in press conferences. I'm sure. That yeah. Might yeah. Be handy well. Yes, the uh, like before uh, the first game in Euro '88, uh, I was interviewed uh, on German TV. Oh, um, we got an exclusive interview with the chief of police in Stuttgart because he wouldn't do it in English because he wasn't confident in English. Oh, okay. And I was able to do it in, so in German. Yeah, Deutsch, yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Oh, is this what we're doing? It? Uh, oh, I've, um, I've forgotten a lot of my German from secondary school. But it, uh, the. The other thing I was uh, going to say to you was um, the, the language thing at the Seoul Olympics when uh, Ben Johnson was done for uh, drug use mm -hmm. um, and the press conference was held, it was, it was in uh, Seoul and I was in the broadcast centre in Seoul, not at the press conference. Uh, the press conference uh, was in French because that's the language of the Olympics. And uh, I was letting it go, and Max Mulvihill, the producer in Dublin, said, "If you understand any of this, uh, feel free to, you know, do a simultaneous, mm -hmm. not a simultaneous translation, well, say what they're talking about." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did, uh, and he and he came back to me again. He said, uh, "That's that's great. Just keep it going there." And so I did. And um, unbeknownst to me, um, the press conference, having made its statement that he'd been banned and stripped of his gold medal. BBC in London had gone back to studio in London to discuss this 
but we were still showing the press conference. Uh, and on it went for a bit until they asked for, and I was doing my thing, and then they asked for a question from the floor. And this is where I got really lucky because the guy who stood up was German. So he asked the question in German, German so I, I knew so. what that was, and they answered him in German, I knew what that was, and then back to French, and then when they'd had enough, they said, okay, you can finish up, I think we got the gist of what that was about, uh, hand back to studio, so I did, and um, what happened, oh yeah, the, uh, apparently the following day, the, the late lamented Irish press had it on the front page, BBC had nobody to deal with the press conference, <laughs> and RTE was able to... Pull out this yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah. So it did come in handy. So it did. It did. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's talk about your broadcasting career. So you said that you started with um, with BBC. Yeah. What are some of your fondest memories of your time with with BBC? Any teething problems early on? Teething problems. Uh, you wouldn't expect me to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, honestly, it, it it was pretty straightforward. I mean, I was riven with nerves for the first while, and I. Uh, made a bit of a hames of uh, one of my early reports delivered live because the, uh, the studio was you kind of sat on chairs like this let's say the main production desk was up over there and the guy sitting behind it was the presenter of the program so we all sat along a wall and shimmied up seats until it was our turn okay. so, and then you're sitting in front of this guy and he introduces you and I, I was just uh, I don't know, I, I got my breathing wrong and I started okay. to choke halfway through the thing, which was most, most embarrassing. But I got to the end of it, but I felt rotten. I, felt, yeah. mm. I mean, and now I know that if, if, if there is an issue, you, you just you deal with it. You don't dig a hole for yourself. You just, it happens and you get on with it. Uh, but that, I, I recall that. So that would, that would count as my worst uh, teething problem. Um, but they were very good to... It didn't put you off when you went back. No, 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 I went back and they were very good to me. And they... Uh, you know, they, they had a, it was almost an unofficial uh, career path that they would work out for you because this lady, Joy Williams, she would be aware that there wouldn't be necessarily enough work in sport uh, to sustain a, a freelance career, even mm -hmm. for a young lad. So she would actively look at other areas uh, in the organization, like they had a program that they called Speaking Personally, which was a bit like, you'd be familiar maybe with the BBC's Desert Island Discs, where they'd invite in a, a personality who would talk for half an hour and pick favorite music uh, so but they, she said you know we get you a few speaking personally so she did like and I did one with Willie John McBride for instance you know okay. if it was a sporting context mm -hmm. uh, she would put me forward to be the, the host that day and so it worked so they looked after me very well but then um, the same could be said for RTE because uh, it's, it's so you know that I think it's in everybody's interest that everybody's on side and uh, and that's 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 what I found all the way through yeah. mm -hmm. what prompted the switch very simple. Uh, a letter from Fred Cogley. Um, I was by now doing football as well as rugby for BBC Northern Ireland. And it was 1978 and RTE were about to do the World Cup in Argentina. Um, they, that, that was their second World Cup. They'd done the one in West Germany in 74. And they had done that kind of based in Frankfurt with a traveling from Frankfurt to wherever and some, I think, off-tube comedy as well. But they were now more confident that they could handle the thing from Argentina. And the editor who would be in charge of the away team, Mike Horgan, uh, had looked at it and said, we need four commentators for the World Cup. Uh, they had Jimmy McGee. They had Philip Green, radio commentator. Uh, they hired Billy George of the Cork Examiner, as it was then. 
and they were stuck for a fourth. And Mike said, what about the fellow up in Belfast? I wonder would he be interested? So it was 1978, so it was a, a letter arriving. Okay. And it was from Fred Pogley, the head, head of sport in RTE. And he said um, that uh, they were discussing uh, servicing the World Cup and he didn't want to, the phrase he used, which I'd never heard before, was raise a hair oh. among colleagues in Beans, Dublin. Yeah. Uh, that perhaps uh, they would think it odd that they'd ask somebody from outside. And so uh, Fred said, I don't want to raise a hair, but we were just wanted to send you out to see if you'd be at all interested in uh, joining the RTE team for uh, Argentina 78. Well, as you can imagine, I was straight out to the postbox <laughs> to send them a letter back. And that's how it all began with RTE. Very good. Yeah. So how was your first World Cup? It was a dream. Yeah. It was a dream. I was in a place called Mendoza for four weeks. Okay. Nobody had heard of Mendoza then. It's in the foothills of the Andes, but now everybody knows Argentine wine comes oh, okay. from there. But uh, nobody, knew, nobody knew then. So it was a flight to Buenos Aires and then another hour and a half uh, to the Andes. And we did six games in the four weeks. And among the games we did were games involving Brazil mm -hmm. and Holland. We went on to the final. Uh, and I also did the game, it's famous in World Cup lore, but it might be uh, a bit, it is before your time, obviously, but it's, it, you'll find it in any history of the World Cup, it's one of the great games. Just, um, Argent, no, not Argentina, um, Holland and Scotland, Archie Gemmel, uh, mm. or was it, they won, they beat them 3-2, whoever it was anyway, Scotland, but that was, that was just a, a wonderful uh, experience, it's, to be in, in, at a World Cup, and, be at a World Cup like that where there was time to soak it up. I mean, now when we do World Cups, you know, the game here and then you might have the next day off, you might not have the next yeah. day off, but a lot of travel involved. And you, you can almost feel it, a bit like Con Hulan said about uh, Italian 90, and somebody asked, he said, what was it like being in Italy at the World Cup? Or, I'm sorry, no, I've got it wrong. Said, what was it like being? What was, it, what was Italian 90 like? He said, I don't know, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it does kind of be a yeah, bit like yeah. that. Because it wasn't a 32 team World Cup back then either, which made it a lot easier. I mean, bear in mind, Euro 88 for Ireland, uh, that was only an 18. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. The next World Cup's going to be. Oh, next 64. Sure. Yeah. Lost. 48. Uh, 48. Yeah. yeah. And. So, George, you were, in, you were in good company on, uh, on your first World oh, Cup yes. final, oh. uh, Mr. Jimmy McGee. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And Jimmy and I uh, went on to become great friends, and we did. Um, program called Know Your Sport for 11 years, yeah. which uh, keeps popping up on like Twitter and YouTube from time <laughs> to time. I don't know where people get the stuff. They, obviously, there are a lot, of archives. I are a lot of addicts with a lot of old VHS yeah, cassettes yeah, yeah. that people kind of recast and throw out there. I don't, they, they were great days. We had great fun. Jimmy was a, a, great, uh, a great character as well as, well as everything else. He had a fund of stories. And I remember one day uh, there was a a gig we were both involved in, a private uh, cycle race, a Michael Hearn classic, the John Hearn classic. John Hearn was a, 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 an ironmonger in Clonmel, uh, caricature, and um, Sean Kelly, of course, came from down that way. And this was when Kelly and Roach were huge. So John Hearn, the late John Hearn's son, Michael, decided to name a, a classic uh, cycle race in his dad's honour. Uh, and. It took place on a couple of occasions before it ever got onto TV. Okay. But uh, he, they were ambitious, so they wanted it to be like it was on TV if it wasn't. And they had Jimmy and me down there because we were involved together on the Nissan Classic, which was on at the time. Uh, but I remember uh, being in the hotel 
dining room for breakfast. And Jimmy, uh, Jimmy was there and in front of him was a plate of four sausages and to the side the Irish Independent sports pages. And I said, is that the secret? And he said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, at the time, you were, you were a prominent commentator now for football mm. and rugby. Yeah. And then eventually you did have to make a yeah. decision. Uh, what was, was that decision difficult, choosing one over the other? No, because uh, it was football I wanted to start doing. Uh, and football, I, I started doing rugby because there was no space in football. Mm. Uh, and it was the next best thing for me. Uh, I was very fortunate over all those years to get the chance to combine the two, uh, and I got some great gigs out of it. I mean, the Irish World Cup uh, against Australia in 1991, uh, the Brian O'Driscoll hat trick in Paris, first win since goodness knows when, you know. Uh, uh, and he was only 21 at the time. Um, so there were, it, it, it would have been hard to say, no, I don't want to do this anymore, but circumstances kind of conspired yeah. and new people came along like Ryan. Yeah, we were, so we were to say your move to football kind yeah. of facilitated his Royals. push towards being the main commentator for rugby on Well, but I'd have to say that um, it, it's important that I think, I mean, much in all as I enjoyed the opportunity of doing both, I think it's important that you have a an identifiable voice with each. Yeah, yeah a niche. That, that, that it's not the same guy doing everything, uh, which was the way it was done when there weren't enough people around. Uh, I think it's a, a sign of the, uh, of, of the I don't know, how, how would you put it, the, the, the strength of the coverage, that, uh, that you yeah. have your own specialists in the various fields. And I still have a, a wonderful combination of, of uh, uh, I nearly said duties, but they don't feel like duties, you know what I mean? <laughs> Commitments, if you like. Uh, in that I, I do the football, but I also get to do athletics, track and field. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, you've had the chance to accommodate on a few different sports, mm. oh, yeah. the likes of the Olympics and stuff yeah. like that. So outside, let's say football and rugby, what are some of your favourite sports to, to watch and commentate on? I, I love track athletics. Yeah. Um, I, the, the drama in a, a race, be it a sprint, but I mean a, a hundred metre sprint is just incredible to think that, you know, it's almost as if you're running the race yourself because there's no margin for error whatsoever. If you think that uh, it's reckoned that you speak three words a second and 180 words a minute, and the race lasts, well, by the time they're, the gun is gone till they're over the line, it could be less than 10 seconds. So that's only giving you, what, 30 words? Yeah. <laughs> and you've got to... Be uh, selective about your 30 yeah, words. And, uh, and you're also faced with the process, you've got to decide who you're gonna point up here, because you can't say... You don't have a chance. You, know, you, you, might be, you might be a little slower out of the blocks uh, than Colin, mm -hmm. uh, and, Gavin probably. Gavin, bad from, me, uh, Ga Gavin from Cavan might be an outsider. <laughs> and suddenly I've I've decided that I'm going with Colum, but you have got a better start and you're up mm -hmm. first. And then as I'm noticing that and my thirty words are coming out, suddenly he's in lane eight <laughs> and I haven't been looking at him at all. <coughs> and uh, that's, that tends not to happen in a, an Olympic or a World Championship final, but it could happen yeah. on the way there. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's such a challenge. Mm. And you know, when, when there is a 100 meter final, the stadium is so silent. And it's, it's, it's just, you're, you're really in the moment. It's, a, it's an amazing experience. And then you get something like Thomas Barr in, uh, yeah. in Brazil. With Craig Walford, man. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but that, uh, you know, the, the thing, I, I was so touched after that, uh, Jerry Thornley writing up a race, quoted my commentary in its entirety oh. in the Irish Times, the oh, 40 whatever seconds of it that it was, but which didn't come to much on the page, mm -hmm. obviously. Mm -hmm. But um, if I, I, 
when, when, you, when something like that happens, then you say, my goodness me, it must have got that right. And, it, and it's a great feeling. Mm. But, but again, you only get the chance to, for that to happen if you've got to the point that you, you know, the, that you can go without thinking too much about it. It's, it. It has to become almost like the golfer's muscle memory. You gotta, you got, you can't be searching for stuff in your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have time to. No, no, you, because it's, it's all over so quickly uh, that you really need to go. And I, I mean, it's. I'm often asked, do you do you write stuff down, uh, phrases and things to use? And I say no, I don't because uh, I prefer to let it come to me. But it will only come to you if you have soaked up all this Everything. stuff beforehand. Yeah. And then. In the way that if you're having a, a, a conversation with somebody, the conversation will, will flow naturally because you know what you're talking about. It's a, you, you're, you're confident. You're confident, yeah. yeah. And it's, um, I, I, just, uh, I just find that that's, that's the way to do it. Um, there are those who would, you know, when I, when I worked in London, for instance, uh, and this wasn't comedy, this was um, scripting for Sports Report at five o'clock when I would present that program. And they would ask you to, on a Friday to write three intros for every reporter. Okay. Win, lose, draw. Oh, so course, that they could yeah. tell the reporter what you were going to say before their report so that they could structure and, the report. Adjust for but then Manchester United get beaten 7 0 at home or beat Arsenal 8 0 at home. And you're, what you wrote the day before, it's going to go out the window mm. because it's not, it's not going to be relevant. But if Arsenal haven't won at Old Trafford since. Uh, 1976 today they were beaten 8 now. Yeah. Yeah, you know you want to give it a bit more than yeah, that. Yeah. So um, that 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 kind of that was early enough in my career. Like the first ten years of my career, I was doing this stuff, and of course it, that was the way they did it. So I wasn't going to tell them, "Hey, you don't do it like that." But it did strike me that this was not the way you should be doing it. Mm-hmm. And then we're back to the button, however, however, in the butt that and the middle B being broadcasting. You know, you're telling the story. And you're not writing it down to be read, and you're engaging with your audience. And I think that's a great thing about radio because I do lyric now that you you've effectively got an audience of one, mm-hmm. and so you're, you're communicating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd be remiss now, given that you've experienced so many historical sporting moments over the years, to ask what are some of your favourites that stand out in memory. Well, funnily enough, that Ben Johnson Carl Lewis race, that hundred metres in Seoul. In '88, because it was an amazing uh, experience. Like the the uh, Eastern audience wouldn't be used to this as, as a sporting thing. They I mean, they wouldn't be into athletics in the way that maybe we in the West would be. Mm-hmm. And so the majority in the stadium, and so were in awe of what was about to happen. And their silence before that race went off, and it happened at like lunchtime because okay. of the time difference. It was just it, you could have cut it with a knife. It was it was amazing. And that was my first Olympic 100 meter final, into the bargain, so you can imagine what, <laughs> what, it, what it felt like. Uh, and it was just such a dramatic race. Uh, shame that it was tarnished in the way it was, but that was one. Now, what else? Obviously, uh, Stuttgart 88, and that shootout in uh, Genoa mm-hmm. in 1990. Um, and the Italian game in uh, New Jersey in 1994. And uh, the playoff in Iran, <laughs> and Robbie Keane scoring the only goal against uh, Germany before the World Cup final, the only goal in the World Cup before they conceded to Brazil in the final. You know, on and on and on. Yeah. And so great, you know, like Champions League finals as well. That just. Yeah. Uh, I was about to ask about uh, actually, just, you know, of course, there are the international moments, mm-hmm. but what actual club football uh, moments stand out? Well, uh, we went to the. Uh, 
European Cup finals it was in 1989 and on the way home stopped off in Liverpool to do Liverpool Arsenal in a match that would decide the league. Uh, Liverpool could afford to lose 1-0. Uh, they lost 2-0. Michael, Michael Thomas won the league for Arsenal. I got to do that match. We joined. And, and, and I, I, yeah, my dad uh, still kind of looks back on Michael Thomas with... Yeah, well, I don't then, know. Yeah, Arsenal, probably. Arsenal, my team. Um, I don't live with their mind, if yeah. you can't guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, everybody has to have a team, and that happens to be mine. And uh, yeah. it was just that was a wonderful moment. Uh, and I've I've had other great. It was with Arsenal in Copenhagen when they won the um, what Copenhagen's Cup was it mm. that time? Um, you know, so they're and and big matches. Like I've, I've a, a great draw for uh, Germany still because of having lived there. And I'm very fond of uh, Munich as a, a city. That wasn't where I was in Germany. I was up in the Ruhr, so the team up there would have been Borussia Dortmund. But um, I, I, I just really enjoy going to see Bayern Munich play. And uh, of course, the way that the game has evolved now, they have become almost the pinnacle in Germany. Mm. Though not this year. too well at the moment. No, they're not. They're not. They're not. They're, um, that change of uh, coach hasn't really worked out the no, way they were wanted it, Nico Kovac. Um, I'd say you enjoyed the 2006 World Cup tremendously. Oh, I did, I did. I mean, that, 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 that was almost like a, I don't know, a revi- a revisiting my time mm. in Germany. And of course, Germany by now was United, which it wasn't when I was there. Uh, so I got to see places that I wouldn't otherwise have been, like Leipzig. And it was just fantastic. Leipzig is an amazing city. It's got a, a railway station that has the longest or widest, um, what, what would you call it, number of platforms, but it's okay. a huge, huge uh, station. And um, it's uh, got a stadium that's, you know, dates from the old uh, Soviet era time, which was a 100,000 seater central stadium, but it's a listed building. Okay. So what they did for the World Cup, because they didn't need a 100,000 stadium, they built a stadium inside the stadium. <laughs> So the <laughs> exterior is the old, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But it's actually just the stadium within a yeah. Wow. But, but, but the stadium, the modern stadium where Red Bull play is actually mm. inside. Mm. It's amazing. Um, were you one for memorabilia over the years? Yes. Yeah. What any anything stand out that you would collect? Um, I have Pele's signature from a wow from a a, a line of queue for a check in at Mendoza Airport. <laughs> 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 yeah, I got his autograph. Um, I've met uh, many and interesting. My memorabilia, uh, funny enough, oftentimes is in is in my head more than okay. in my, like I do. I do. I say collect programs. I don't really collect them. I get a program. Mm-hmm. I like to get a program, and I never get the chance to read it before the game often enough. But I like to have it and just look back on these things. Uh, but I, there's not I mean, even any of the press badges, anything like that. Oh, I've loads of those. Throw them in the box or anything. I do have a. Have a, and a I mean, and the funny thing, the, the funny thing is. Uh, like a Champions League press pass uh, doesn't actually say which match it is. It's got okay. a, a code on it. I, mean, I don't know how they came by the code. Let's like, say something like CX2F on it. It's like a postal code. Or right, code. Right. Uh, so you never know. Just the date would be the giveaway. So oftentimes I'd give them to like kids uh, who might uh, might be interested in it. Uh, but it, it never says Manchester United against Paris. Whoever, yeah. But uh, the ones the ones to really keep. Are like the uh, the World Cups or the Olympics or the major championships, mm-hmm. which have your photograph on it and your um, said in your name. It says what it was. Yeah, uh, the yeah. yeah, and I would normally keep the uh, like you need a ticket, a sad an SAD secondary accreditation yeah. device. So you need one of those to get in to uh, any specific match when you when you've got a say a World Cup uh, accreditation. 
and then if you're going to do a stand up before the gig, you need another ticket for that. So I would have a couple, a couple of those as well as the uh, as well as the actual uh, ID. Do you ever pick up any I don't know jerseys off a player or anything like that? No, um, but there was a time when I uh, worked for UEFA mm-hmm. when RTE uh, lost the rights to the Champions League TV three at the start of this century for three years uh, through the good offices of Des Casey of Dundalk, who was then a, a vice president of UEFA and is a lifetime vice president now. Um, Des got me a gig as a media officer, uh, which um, RTE were quite happy about because it, it was going to get me on the inside and maybe Access, increase yeah. my contacts. Anyway, uh, a media officer uh, for UEFA is basically there to manage the press box of the, well, more the broadcasting facilities than the press box because the money's in the broadcasting. Yeah. Anyway, um, he's assigned the media officer to a team uh, and stays with them until they're knocked out okay but only during their home matches okay so i should have said maybe it's assigned to a stadium mm-hmm. so the first one i did was porto i have a porto shirt very good uh, along the way uh, i did um, monaco oh nice uh, and i have a monaco shirt with my name and the number 10 <laughs> did you pick the number uh, no, they did. Oh, okay. They did. They must, must have you in higher regard. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. The front yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I have that, those those hang at home in the wardrobe. Uh, much to my wife's. I won't say the annoyance, but she just wonders why I have it. <laughs> uh, over your career, George, who is the best player you've had to be joined to watch? Um, well, coming from the same town and uh, having been christened in the same church, George Best. Of course. Um, I had the... Uh, good fortune of seeing him in his pomp in the 60s when I was a spectator uh, and then I had the opportunity to not only commentate on him but to actually kind of get to know him um, and I, ultimately I was involved in a couple of uh, TV shows when he tribute shows to him uh, when they had me along in the audience and you know I kind of got to meet him socially as well and he was he was the loveliest guy he was just had this uh, unfortunate tendency to um, not be able to stay out of mischief and uh, it's sad very sad that uh, he his career on the pitch didn't last as long as it might have and that uh, that it ended the way it did but he and um, well Pele I didn't see play because uh, in the flesh uh, he was working for TV or when I I met him Um, but having seen some like wonderful players you know even right you know today start today with Messi and Ronaldo start coming back I think what Ronaldo has done, uh, how he has managed his playing career, is absolutely phenomenal. He's 34 this week, I think. Speci- this, this, yeah. week, this week. Spe- this week. The specimen he's turned himself mm-hmm. into and the, the difference he made when he went to Juventus to, to there. Mm-hmm. Them to them. Yeah. Um, and you know, there are so many of them. Uh, you know, look, look at all the leagues now, there's some wonderful, fabulous players. And I just think that. Uh, you know, in many ways, the, the money coming into the game, the big, big money, has turned it into something very different from our perspective. Certainly, no, yeah. no access to the players the way there was. It's all by appointment only, and you can never get to know them, and you never. And, e- and even still, even when you do probably get yeah. to meet them, there's a certain degree of media training involved. Oh, absolutely. Their, absolutely. Behalf, like. But you know, I would have had, for argument's sake, uh, Glenn Hoddle's phone number. Mm-hmm. You know, that never happened before. Yeah, uh, yeah. never happened again. Um, but. What the the money has done is it, it it has raised the standard to such an extent because obviously uh, the money is is a driver for the the clubs and they want to achieve and they want the best 
and the facilities have to be the best and so it goes on and on. So I mean the debate at the moment about do you do away with the away goal rule in, in Europe because why? Because uh, why was it brought in? Because Things were difficult when you went away back then. You know, you might draw a team from behind the Iron Curtain. You would know none of the players, you know, no way of knowing who the players were, and the pitch, you had no idea what the pitch was going to be like. So it was, you know, going to be very, very difficult to go away. Now it's not so difficult to it's go away. Here. Because, you know, if you, play in, if you play in the Aventus Stadium, or you play in the Bernabeu, or you play in Wembley, or you play in St. James's Park in Newcastle, the pitch is always going to be the same and immaculate. I mean, you consider. I'm sure they're all like this, but uh, Arsenal's training ground is the one that I actually saw in action. The pitch pitches are the same dimensions, the same grass type, the same everything as the Emirates. Mm, yeah. So that they're playing. Familiarized. Yes. Yeah. And um, I think that really uh, that that's been a that's been a, a great thing about it, and it's made it into so the the entertainment that it can be. But sadly, it's it's marginalised it for those who like to get up close and smell the embrication. I'm going to bring back slightly, okay. um, back to Jimmy McGee. So yes. last night um, I went home. I, I live in Diggs here in yeah. Dublin with uh, a 90-year-old man. All right. Just myself and, him, and yeah. myself um, in a house in Marino. But Tom actually used to work with Jimmy McGee oh, really? for a long time. And um, he was actually a neighbour of his. Okay. Uh, they would have went to school together. Did he work the railway with him? Yeah, yeah. he did. And uh, they talked about it. Yeah. For Thomas told me the stories hundreds of times. Yeah. But uh, I told him that I was interviewing you today. Yeah. And uh, he said, "Ask for Jimmy. Ask for Jimmy." <laughs> so um, no, I just said I, I'd, I'd tell you about that. And yes, absolutely. Glad that you knew about his time in the railway. Did he yeah. speak with Fondly? He did. He did. I, he, we had great times because we were away a lot together. There's another um, story he, he tells about. He used to tell about himself um, he, when he was growing up on the Cooley Peninsula, and uh, there had been a lot of GAA around and. Uh, Jimmy was always into association football and uh, he told this story about waiting for the bus one day and he had his, ba- his boots in a paper bag he tried to look uh, inconspicuous because he knew that uh, the one where he was going wouldn't have necessarily gone down that well, well in, the, in the local area and an old neighbour woman came out to the gate and saw him waiting at the bus stop and said, ah, there you go now McGee, look at you there with your boots in the bag off to play the soccer. <laughs> <laughs> But Jimmy would tell that story again, so you can tell Tom. I will, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll play it for him now. <laughs> um, so we'll step away from uh, the sporting aspect of your career and step into the musical aspect oh, yes. of your career. Yeah, yeah. So your work with Lyric FM, when did that yeah. start? When we were approached or yeah. did you suggest it? Well, Lyric is, twi- is it 20 years old this year. I, I, I never quite get, was it 98 or 99? Mm. What happened was, I started in radio, and I found radio, as I've said, a very intimate medium. And I, I really enjoy working in radio. I enjoy working in television, but television is a team game, very much a team game. Mm-hmm. Whereas in radio, like you are on your own. Which do you prefer, actually, TV or radio? Ooh, well. If yeah. you had to pick now, I know you're going first. If I, had, if I had to pick, gosh, that, that's a hard one. I, I, I suppose it, ultimately I'd be saying radio because, yeah. because television, television has changed so much. And the, 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 the end of television that I'm in, uh, so rights dependent mm-hmm. and you know it could be we won't have the, the opportunity to show the stuff anymore you know when I started off uh, public broadcasters like RTE and BBC showed the Ireland matches because they were there there was yeah. no that, that's why they were shown the national broadcaster did that but now hmm, you don't know maybe maybe not it takes governments to say this is a listed event and we have to show it on free to air television but that needn't necessarily be the uh, national broadcaster that could be a commercial operation so uh, I can see 
the way the, the, the wind is blowing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that would sound that, that it was a selfish decision on my part that I say, I want to do radio. No, I do, I've always enjoyed it. I've, I find it a, a very, very uh, intimate medium. I listen a lot to radio. I listen to radio in the car as opposed to uh, playing music. Mm -hmm. um, I could tell you uh, on my way here, my um, radio listening included RTE Radio 1, uh, News Talk, Lyric, uh, Classic FM, okay. and you'll laugh at this one, but Westdeutsche Rundfunk. On oh, the app, that thing you're on the app through the yeah yeah yeah, yeah. The car, the Bluetooth very good car. yeah so I had them all at one but when I get fed up with one of them I just pop over pop to the yeah and I had set up uh, the German station on the phone so that if I got fed up with what I could <laughs> go there because I do like to it's another way of keeping the German going yeah yeah um, so radio yes uh, and how did I get in uh, well um, I had seen or observed, better put, uh, in RTE, that uh, the odd guy would get a gig uh, filling in for, say, Joe Duffy on Live Line when he was on his holidays. And I thought this might be a way to get back into radio because I wasn't doing any radio. Uh, and this would have been the 90s. Uh, and I met various people and nothing came of it. And then Lyric started up. So uh, the first head of Lyric was a man from Belfast called Seamus Crimmins, whom I kind of knew. So I rang him up. Uh, on spec and said, uh, asked him to meet me, and he he he, he was very nice. And he said, yes. Why don't we have afternoon tea in the Shelburne Hotel? We're back to the back Shelburne. to the Shelburne, yeah. <laughs> and um, anyway, went along and uh, I said, look, that I'd really like to do a bit of radio, but I appreciate I can't offer myself to you on a regular basis. He's going to run a station with regular uh, strands every day mm -hmm. and weekends. I can't really offer myself on any kind of regular basis, but. I would like if you had a, an opportunity to have a go uh, as a music presenter. And he said, fine, that's great, uh, fine, I'm happy to try that. So he did, he tried really hard, he tried all sorts of things, but it never quite worked out. Um, and then he gave me a show on Christmas Day 2002. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't in on Christmas Day, okay, you but he, fi he found me a slot, uh, and I did it like a football commentator's Christmas show just as a one-off okay. uh, on Christmas afternoon and um, that was fine and then he left and went to the Arts Council and I thought shit you know that's the end of you now I, I, was, I was actually getting somewhere <laughs> and now, now this is this is gone so uh, nothing ventured nothing gained a bit like how I started in Belfast except it worked there but now <laughs> now my sponsor has left Lyric so back into throwing myself with renewed vigour into my sporting <laughs> career, I found myself in Moscow, uh, commentating on Russia versus Switzerland because it had some relevance to Brian Kerr's Ireland. And uh, in those days, mobile phones were less sophisticated than they are now, and they would interfere with the broadcast signal. Yeah. Uh, so you had to turn off your phone if you were anywhere near a microphone. So I turned it off, and this match was in the Luzhniki, not the Luzhniki, the locomotive stadium, in a far-flung suburb of Moscow. We came out of the match, uh, and got a taxi and we're driving through the dark streets because the street lights in Moscow then weren't great. And you know, strange foreign city, Russian writing and all this. I turn on my phone, I'm feeling like a spy when the phone beeps, it's got a message. <laughs> I call up the message and this voice says, uh, hello, uh, my name is Adon O'Doul. I'm the new head of Lyric. I wonder would you mind giving me a call? <laughs> so obviously Seamus had left a file 
and my name was on it. And Adon uh, gave me uh, a show on a Saturday morning from 11 to half 12. And his brief was, I give you 90 minutes like a football match and I just want you to play what you like and talk about where you've been. Okay. And that's where it started. And then it expanded to become like a football match with extra time, which was two hours. And then it became three hours. And now it's three hours on two days. So, <laughs> yeah, Saturdays and Sundays, 10 and 2 1. Give it a go. It's great stuff. It's a long it's game, game, yeah. It's a long game, yeah. And you have an affinity for classical music? I do. Yeah, I was uh, taught piano as, as a kid. Uh, that developed into cello, uh, which I played in school. Oh, you were, the, you were the chief cellist? Yeah. 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 Um, I, did, I, did, I gave that up after I left school. I mean, it was quite a question at the time. Like, I wanted to play sport. Um, you know, it, it just wasn't, just wasn't the time to, to do everything. Um, Could you still pick it up, maybe? Yes, I, I, yeah, but not to any kind of standard, but okay. I can play the piano. Still, okay. Yeah, I still do. Um, my wife, Linda, gave me a, a baby grand a, a couple of Christmases ago. Really? Yeah, for Christmas. So we have that as a proud piece of furniture in the house, and I play that. I'm actually um, a grade two piano. Good man. Yeah, I can play uh, Mary Had a Little Love. Great to see you. My parents would be very proud of Mary yeah. and Tony, yeah. yeah. I can play All that, that money went well. <laughs> I can play that on Tin Whistle. Oh, okay. <laughs> we could end the collaborate somehow. Oh, yeah. Do you play it? I play guitar and I sing. Can you play so, Mary Had a Little Lamb? Well, we could, we could, end, this okay. with, we could end this with a, a song. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have a fucking piano out there. The, the he was the hottest boy band on the show. <laughs> so who am I, Louis Walsh? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you're you're the front man. You're <laughs> who's it? What's your name? Shane Foylan <laughs> from Westlife. Yeah, we're just a supporting cast. Yeah. Um, guys, do you have any? Questions? Yeah, I think we'll go to the slightly lighthearted yeah. side of it. Um, so George, outside of sports mm-hmm. and your musical interests, what else? What what do you do to relax? Uh, well, before I uh, first thing I did this morning was take our two um, our two Jack Russells for a oh, really? lengthy walk. Uh, their names are Brenda and Eddie. And uh, the reason for that are they married? They're not married. Oh, they just live together. They sound like a married couple a bit. Yeah. I, well, they act like a married couple. <laughs> she gives him hell. <laughs> so just like a normal marriage. We were, we, at, 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 girls, don't be taking this as offensive. <laughs> they were in the kennel uh, recently because we took a week away. And uh, when I came back, uh, the kennel lady said to me, she gives him an awful time. <laughs> <laughs> it's obvious, so. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, they're called Brenda and Eddie because uh, you might be familiar with a song by Billy Joel called Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. Mm-hmm. And in uh, the middle section, I've got, that's the one that begins bottle of red, bottle of white, bottle of oh, yeah. your appetite. But the middle section goes Brenda and Eddie with the popular studies and the king and the queen of the prom, riding around, soft top down on the radio arm. I saw it there, yeah. yeah. Did you two of them at the same no, time? No, no, that's a good story about that as well. But just. To, about the Brendan and Eddie and the song, they um, uh, broke up at the end. <laughs> uh, we had Eddie, um, who was a present from uh, our son, uh, who's a vet, okay. and he got us the dog. Um, as, uh, my wife's family always had uh, Jack Russells, and uh, we were going to give him a, you know, a, a, an odd name like Killigan or something. But <laughs> the kids decided he had to be Eddie because of uh, is it. Frazier had a dog called oh, yeah. Jack Russell called Eddie. So Eddie was Eddie. Anyway, because we had Eddie, there was an Eddie in my life, I would occasionally be singing this song, you know, Brenda and Eddie with the popular studies. So another, the, the lady who, uh, the, the, the trainee doctor, uh, then um, turned up at the door one day with this little girl pup. 
and said, meet, meet Brenda. <laughs> that was how that happened. Took, you took Brenda and Eddie for a walk this morning? Yeah, I took Brenda and Eddie for a walk this morning and uh, then I had a cup of coffee and then I came here. But that, that's how, that, this is how I relax. Uh, I, we do, we do, Linda and I, we would often go for quite lengthy walks. She's very much into um, uh, making sure I'm fit, because, <laughs> and she's fit, because uh, she's in the medical game herself. Uh, she's a radiographer. Um, but yeah, we do that. Um, uh, we go and uh, we would go to concerts, you know, classical concerts, um, both here and in Belfast. And uh, if we're in Belfast, we'd go and watch Ulster play rugby. Very good. Just, just to keep the flag flying, so to speak. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that would be how we would uh, tend to relax. Um, I don't have any, you know, I play the piano from time to time. Mm -hmm. uh, gener generally speaking, we would just go places and and enjoy, enjoy the open air. Very good. I think you asked one of our main questions that we usually do ask there as well, tea or coffee, would you be more, I'd be more coffee, yeah. More coffee, yeah. I do like tea from time to time, but mm. I'm definitely coffee. I'm hooked on the um, espresso ristretto. Oh. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Have you got a wee machine at home? We do, yeah, that was something. We got a present of that. I would never, never have thought of it. I thought it was, this is gimmick, you know? Because <laughs> I was a, very much, a, I'm not a, like a, 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 one of, I'm not a kind of cafe latte guy or okay. any of that. I would be into the more the cup more coffee than the, the milky drink. And um, I, I was always making filter coffee, which I would drink black. You know, grind it, put it in the little cone, filter it, and drink it. How do you find the, the coffee in RT actually? Better than it was. Okay. Yeah. It's, the it's, Americano it's, it's and, the Americano and R, the last Americano I had in RTE was very, very good. Okay. Very okay. good. Was that from the canteen then? No, it was from the Oasis, which is just uh, an area the little uh, snack bar below our office. Very good. Uh, in the new building near Nutley Lane. Um, the coffee in the canteen is very good too. Yes. If I'm doing the show uh, in Dublin and I haven't had breakfast, I would very often have a Danish that I, should, I shouldn't be having and a coffee <laughs> to get me going. Because mm -hmm. I need, I need the, the caffeine shot. But yeah, they, um, I tend to drink the, uh, the coffee as, as a... As a an Americano with, with hot water in it. But it's, um, I just thought those things were a gimmick, but I'm, I'm, I'm a great fan. <laughs> um, a few guests have told us now that this is a hard question to think of off the cuff, oh. but uh, three guests, living or dead, that you would have over for a dinner party. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so generally, I think we need to actually start in advance. Yeah, 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 yeah. To, to get to have a, a bit of a chance of thinking about it well. Yeah. Um, there would be a, a sports person for sure, and there would be a, a musician for sure. And I think the musician uh, I would have would be Barry Douglas, who's a concert pianist from Belfast, um, who played the concert hall uh, only recently, internationally acclaimed, won the Tchaikovsky Prize in 1986 or seven in Moscow, uh, went to the same school as me some years behind me. So uh, for, to have him there, and I have interviewed him but to, in the past uh, for the radio, but to have him there would be to kind of plot his course through the international dimension of what he's done okay. to compare to what I've had the opportunity of doing as only a, a, an onlooker, mm -hmm. uh, then I would have a player, okay. I'm not sure who, and uh, some frantic okay. okay. who best that I would like, like to have there. Uh, I, I've mentioned George Best, but I don't think, I'd, I'd prefer somebody I knew less about okay. to, yeah. to, to, to find out more yeah. that I'd be able to find out more about. And um, do you know, I actually think, and this is going to be a funny one, it would be Jupp Heynckes, the former the Bayern former Bayern Munich manager. Yeah. I shall tell you why, 
because I found his career path fascinating. He was the centre forward for Borussia Mönchengladbach when I was living in Germany. Okay. And where I lived in Germany, in the Ruhr, I was able to go to a match every Saturday because there were eight or nine teams in Indeed. the immediate vicinity. And Mönchengladbach were not long out of being, you know, top European, or about to become top European, sorry, the wrong end, the, 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 the 70s, they were about to become a top European team. And Heinkes was their centre forward. Heinzkis went to Real Madrid uh, and got fired for winning the Champions League. Uh, he went to Bayern Munich uh, and they let him go, which they shouldn't have done. And then when they got into bother with after Guardiola, they got him back and he did it again. And then he said, I've had enough. Now, what fascinates me about him is he has, he's now in his 70s. Uh, he comes from the area near Mönchengladbach, which is the Lower Rhine. And he still lives there in a farmhouse with his wife and whatever animals he has. And he's a grown-up daughter. But when he was managing Bayern, he lived in a hotel in Bayern and he just watched football on TV. And <laughs> then he would go home when he, when he could. But I just think to have gone through life and done all that and been the success that he was, but to be able to, be, to maintain, well, he's obviously got a, a solid marriage, to be able to maintain all that while living the life that he did. Yeah. And to have had that success as both a player and then as a manager, I think that he, he would be a fascinating uh, a person to have at a dinner table. And he would, uh, because he's, he's, he's the age he is now, would have so much, so well much to say. Yeah. Uh, and then, I don't know, the third, the third person would, would have to be a woman. Okay. Because I couldn't imagine uh, having that kind of conversation. Of course, you can have a lad's night out. But I would want this to be... A little to, more civilized. A, a little more, and, and to, to have another dimension to it and, and I'm desperately thinking who, who I would like to have to have there as um, you know as the kind of the balancing act and I think it would have to be somebody from from the world of politics okay um, and then again I'm back in Germany okay for Angela Merkel yeah okay. oh yeah. who was the daughter of a uh, clergyman from West Germany Mm -hmm. who was moved to East Germany. So she grew up in East Germany and has now been the most prominent politician of the U United Germany era. Mm -hmm. So in the hope that that isn't too tutophonic, okay. <laughs> uh, that would be my three. Barry Douglas, Jupp Heynckes and Angela Merkel. Okay. Okay. Make that's that's a very good answer. answer. Yeah. And it gives you the opportunity to cross dialects like, yeah. Yeah, like you like to do. <laughs> okay. yeah, so. <laughs> This is yeah. the music. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I need to open my game. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll finish then with our traditional uh, Yeah, we usually ask our guests the, about the best piece of advice that's been imparted onto them or that you could impart onto someone else. Um, best piece of advice. Uh, work hard. Um, keep your concentration. Uh, always have your uh, aim in view and don't try to get to the summit in one leap. You have to play, plug, plug your steps. <laughs> yeah, apply yourself, yeah, and plot your steps. Um, and it applies everything that I've had any experience of doing, be it my working life, be it my personal life, be it in terms of learning to play a musical instrument, be it in terms of learning a language, being in terms of doing the job that I do. Um, don't be discouraged by setbacks either, because nothing 
ever runs the way you think it will. Um, and take your opportunities when they present themselves. And don't, don't turn away. I think that's the, the, the kernel of it, is to be prepared to take the opportunity that presents itself because you never know when or, or what that opportunity is going to be. As we say, get our foot in the door. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. And don't let it out. Don't let it out. <laughs> yeah. And that's very true. The hardest thing of all is getting in that door. But I think if, if, if you want to distill what I said, like I, I can't say I've never been asked that question before, but I, I wasn't quite prepared to answer it uh, specifically in, a, in one, one, two, three words. But I think the kernel of it is, is to be prepared so that you are available to take the opportunity that presents itself. And take your knocks as they come as well. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Perfect. George, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you. Um, thank you, Gavin. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Uh, This has been In Conversation with George Hamilton. Thank you for listening.